Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. There's an idea in startup land around building in public. And the concept is that taking people behind the scenes can be a fantastic way to build trust, create authenticity with your brand, and create an enthusiastic base of early customers. And when I've talked to founders or my students at Northwestern about building in public, the example that I've most frequently used in the last 12 to 18 months has been Amanda Getz. Amanda is the founder of House of Wise, a luxury DTC brand offering CBD-based products to improve women's health. And in this very wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the origins of House of Wise, what it's like to build a DTC business from the ground floor, how Amanda developed an intuitive understanding of her customer, how startups can invest in brand early on, proactively building community, and the benefits of building in public and leading with authenticity. It's a fantastic conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Amanda. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for doing this. I'd be interested actually to start maybe with your your background because I think there's kind of a through line in terms of how you got to House of Wise. So maybe why don't we start with kind of how you got started in your career and how you sort of ended up to the point where House of Wise is about to start. Yeah, so I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from central Illinois, small town, very rural, first generation college grad. So I, when I went to college, it was like my parents had no clue. They were like, good luck. I don't, you know, they couldn't relate and they hadn't had that life experience. And this is actually a funny story that I, I have never shared, but I was, I remember going to college orientation and, you know, it's this huge auditorium at the University of Illinois. And this person, this teacher was talking about AP credits. Mm-hmm. And I raised my hand as this like podunk small town girl. I was like, how do I get AP credits? And the teacher was like, you would already need to add them. Like, fuck, like everybody else has credit already. Like, how does that work? And so fast forward, I busted my butt through college and ended up graduating early. And my last semester of my college year, I had gotten an internship at Ernst & Young. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I would take 18 hours of classes Wednesday night, I would get on a bus from Urbana-Champaign, go up to the Sears Tower in Chicago, work 20 hours at Ernst & Young. So 10 hours Thursday, 10 hours Friday, do all my homework on Saturday, take the bus back on Sunday, do it all again. Wow. And so that got me, because I did that, that got me my full-time position at Ernst & Young where I started doing like hedge fund and tax marketing. And then I moved up into managing their Entrepreneur of the Year program. So long story to get me to my first job where I was analyzing companies and being really like almost like a journalist, but like spending a lot of time with the CEOs of these companies. And I just was like almost intoxicated by the energy and passion by these founders. And I caught that bug and I didn't realize I caught that bug. Moved from Chicago to New York with Ernst & Young, did it for a little bit and then realized I wanted to go to a smaller company so I could like take that first step to uh, entrepreneurialism. Yeah. Worked for a celebrity wedding planner, which is like a complete 180. And the team was like four people. And I managed his brand across like licensing deals, reality TV show. I was like drinking through a fire hose of marketing. But I like that was my first managing a brand experience. Mm -hmm. And then did that for a few years. Then I branched out and finally did my own thing. And I, I started a tech company in the wedding space. So this is back in 2011, 2012, when the New York City tech scene was just starting to heat up and like accelerators were like really bumping. And so I joined an accelerator. We that like I got to go to brunches at Union Square Ventures and all this stuff. And it was just so fun. But ultimately, I made every mistake that you could possibly make during that startup because I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. And it led me to a pitch night one night. It was at The Knot and Carly Roney, the founder of The Knot, was on the panel. Mm -hmm. And because I was in the wedding space, I had talked to her a few times leading up to that. And so she pulled me aside afterwards and was like, let's grab coffee tomorrow. I want to hear how things are going. I go to coffee. Unbeknownst to her, but I knew it at the time, I was like seven weeks pregnant with my second 
Oh, I her being like, how are things going? And I like broke down crying, <laughs> so like a hormonal basket case. And, and she, she was like, listen, when you're ready, we want you to come do what you're doing, but under the knot, because we believe the problem you were trying to solve for, et cetera. So what was the problem? So there was a company called Bridal Brokerage. And it was like an MBA project, but basically they were brokering canceled weddings, meaning people, you know, lots of weddings get canceled for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And you've already paid all these deposits. So how can you broker that, Mm -hmm. get the money back to the people? And then those, those vendors don't have that like last minute availability scramble. Yeah. So I flipped it and said, let's focus on availability because every vendor is trying to book up all their available dates. So how do you create an algorithm that helps them to price through their in, unsold inventory? Because mm-hmm. there's obviously a, a price point matching there. Yeah. And so went to the knot, ended up doing some product stuff, and then was the first like consumer marketer. Mm-hmm. Built that team up to, you know, over 30 people. We merged with our biggest competitor, got bought out by a private equity company. So I got to be a part of a public company, then a private company and did that for a few years. And and so fast forward to Why House of Wise. So I was leading marketing there, kind of, I viewed it as like the height of my career. Like I was where I wanted to be a global brand, awesome team. Yeah. And... I was going through a divorce and I had three kids under the age of four Mm -hmm. while all this was like happening. And for the first time in my life, I was like taking an assessment of like how my body was reacting to all this stress. Yeah. And I realized that alcohol was really, really affecting me. Like if Mm. I drank the, you know, the mommy two glasses of wine at night. Yeah. Yeah. I would... My anxiety attacks the next day, it was a one-to-one ratio. It would, they would go up and wow. I couldn't control it. And so I started to like, I turned to cannabis for the first time in my entire life. Like mm-hmm. I had never touched cannabis because I was an athlete my whole life. And so mm-hmm. I didn't want to like lose, you know, all, all of that. Sure. And so I turned to cannabis despite being like, gosh, I'm a mom of like toddlers and I'm an executive at a you know, global company. But I need help. Yeah. And it helped me immensely. I was taking CBD during the day, microdosing THC at night. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the industry was not talking to someone like me. Like 80% of consumers of even now, like medical cannabis and, and, and legal cannabis were cannabis users before. Yeah. And, and it's not, there aren't enough brands speaking to someone who's like, I'm not trying to be high. Right. Like, right. I just want the functional benefits of a cannabinoid. Yeah. So anyway, like I'm a huge nerd and I went deep and started to understand like FDA doesn't do a lot of cannabis research and hemp research. And so I started to, re- to find research papers from all over the world of what hemp does. Mm-hmm. I started to interview growers and I, I branding is my thing. So I was like, I know I will figure out the branding side, but I want to make sure I, this is a product I want to get behind. And once I understood the like benefits of cannabis and yeah. like what we have inside of us, like I was like, I need to start this. And then COVID hit. And I'm like seeing my friends drink more alcohol than I've ever seen them drink. Right, right. So that led me to to quit my corporate job and and start the company. Wow. I, I want to get into, I want to get into to House of Wise itself, but before we do that, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of going through a, a divorce and with small kids and you're an executive and, and in many cases, that's, uh, that's just a really, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's such a gift to, to be in that position. On the other hand, it makes it really hard. I've seen a lot of my, you know, my students at Kellogg and things like that, that, that jump to, to jump off of that and to make that leap is incredibly hard anyway. And then when you add some of these other kind of structures or, or I don't want to use the word encumbrances because that's, that's, that's a very negative framing on it, but stuff, you had a lot of stuff going on. So like, how did you get up the, I don't know, the courage or 
how did you organize your life maybe prior, like maybe, you know, even like financially, like how did, how did you get yourself in a position where you were able to make a jump like that? Yeah. So let's talk about like the emotional mm-hmm. and then the the actual practical. So the emotional side, there comes a point where I view it as like a scale of your, your cognitive thoughts. Like, and at some point there's a tipping point in that scale where you can't stop thinking about this problem. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you are ideating and you are picturing how it's going to work. And when that is consuming and taking over your like day job thoughts, yeah, it's a, like, it's, it's a view it as a mental snowball where at first you're just going to give voice to these thoughts and you're going to maybe have a conversation. Yeah. And then that conversation, like say I, I DM you on Twitter and say, Sean, I really want to like talk to you about this idea that I can't stop thinking about. Yeah. You will ask me questions. You will give it different like lens. You will pull coals in it. And then you might say, you know, you should really talk to this person. Yeah. Then you have a second conversation. And then that snowball, which was just an idea, becomes bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it's becoming more like concrete, right? And like a practical side, I am a very untraditional VC-backed founder. And what I mean by that is my day job at The Knot Mm -hmm. told my boss that I wanted to start this like D2C company. I said, I'll do nights and weekends, but I'm going to talk about it because I need to tell people I'm doing it so that it can go somewhere. Sure. So I, I was very clear on... I said, if it, if I stop hitting my goals and all of a sudden I'm underperforming, then let's talk. But I promise I won't do that. Right. And I raised a pre-seed round of 450K mm-hmm. to do the R&D, get the products to a good place while keeping my day job. Now, yeah. most VCs that I talked to were like, you're hilarious. We would never do that. But... I told them, I was like, I see this so clearly. Here's the vision. Here's the market size. Here's exactly the plan I'm going to to follow through. Yeah. Take a chance on me. And then I will get you to that milestone. Mm-hmm. And that next milestone was we launched December 1st. Again, I still had a job. By that point, I had tr- transitioned to a halftime CMO for another startup. Mm-hmm. So now I had two and a half days for House of Wise two and a half days for Teal, which mm-hmm. was another startup. And and so did that, launched. I was still the CMO, part-time CMO. Yeah. In January, went out and raised a $2 million seed round, which took a for few them. months because I'm. it takes a while when you're yep. to raise capital. Yeah. It takes a few months. And I told my all my investors, I said, when the money hits the bank, that's when I will be 100% house of wise because now I can pay myself. Yeah. And so that was the practicality of it. Will that work for everyone? No. Sure. Because you have to like find investors who understand that if we're going to give underrepresented founders a chance, they're Mm -hmm. not going to look like a traditional founder. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like too, you'd built up the political capital, at least at the knot to be able to pull out, you know, I hear often folks, they kind of, they want the, they want the right to do, to kind of take a different path, but they haven't necessarily earned the right yet in terms of like, it just is a, it's a risk. But for you, you were a known quantity, at least at the knot. And then I would imagine, I guess, you know, we're going to get into kind of the whole building in public thing too. Like you've, you've had a public presence for a while. So I'd imagine even for Teal, they come in and they know, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to still execute for you at a high level, which I, I have to think helped a lot. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Okay, so so we got to you started at House of Wise. Now you're 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 kind of in full time. So I guess we, we haven't we haven't said what House of Wise, you know, <laughs> the space it's in. What is House yeah. of Wise? Yeah, so House of Wise is empowering women to take control of their sleep, sex, stress, and strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just launched our fourth vertical, and it is at the intersection of community content and commerce. And so from the ground up, we're community based. Mm-hmm. Or content based. Like our fourth buyer was the former editor in chief of Pop Sugar. So bringing in someone who really can build that trusted expertise in the space. Yeah. And trying to remove the shame and guilt 
yeah. that women face every single day, myself oh. included, on needing help yeah. in all aspects of life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, there's so many things, so many places we can go here. <laughs> so, okay, so to, to start, like the, 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 I guess our, so all four, all four products are, is the common thread that they're all kind of cannabis related. And, and then there's additional kind of active type of ingredient that kind of, okay, got it. How did you arrive at, you figure out the cannabis is helping you for, for anxiety. How do you, how do you then go from that? I guess walk me through like the R and D process. How do you go from that to these are the, oh, these, it helps with these other things and making the decision to do a gummy versus some other type of thing. Like how, like what were some of the decisions kind of along the way as you were trying to formulate what the product was ultimately going to become? Yeah. So I want to just start with like the foundational things that I feel like are all interconnected. I started with sleep yeah, because that has been a core thing for my entire life and why I function kind of in the way that I do. Like was- even in college, I prioritized sleep hmm. and I would study in the morning and when everybody else was like going out and sleeping in, like sleep has been such a big thing because I understand like as an athlete, like that's when my muscles would repair is when I'm in deep sleep and what is REM cycles and versus like what happens. And again, when you're drinking, like what happens when you drink? Oh, you fall asleep faster. But like when you use the apps and you use kind of the biohacking stuff, you realize that you're not getting deep sleep. Right. Right. So sleep was number one. And then if somebody didn't use the sleep, why are people struggling to fall asleep? And then I started to understand cortisol levels. Okay. And when you have high cortisol levels because of stress, that blocks your natural melatonin production. Mm -hmm. Because we should naturally produce melatonin, which like at night helps us to fall asleep. Right. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so we need something to bring down cortisol levels. So that led me to the stress line, which is L-theanine plus CBD. And, and then the last one is is like something I faced as like a new mom. And yeah. then I have entered like the dating scene again. Yeah. And there's so much like in society, there's so much narrative around she's just not in the mood. Yeah. I hate that because that puts the blame and the ownership on, in a heteronormative sense, the woman. Yeah. And what actually happens is, again, cortisol plays a part, stress plays a part. But then, like, your hormones change. Every month you go through hormonal changes. Yeah. And and so I wanted to create something that, again, makes her feel less shame and guilt and also... With our content, we talk about like, what are the benefits of having a sexual health routine? Like, Mm -hmm. let's actually educate you on the fact that if you treated it like a workout, because when you have an orgasm, you release serotonin and oxytocin, like all those things happen, which help you feel better. And so we're viewing it as like health and wellness as a whole. Yeah. So those were the first three. Yeah. Yeah. And from the beginning, you mentioned, I know you said that you, you didn't, you were not ever worried about the brand part of it. Like you, 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 you know that you were going to nail that. And it seems like you did. It's a very different, I guess, first of all, implicit in that is an understanding of who your customer is. And you mentioned that the CBD industry did, was not, or cannabis industry was not creating products that spoke to people like you. you. You seem like you have a very strong view of who your customer is. You understand their psychographics. And I don't know, it's, how much of that was just you're building a product kind of for yourself and you assume that there are other people out there like you, which is kind of a common thing that folks will say when they're trying to kind of come up with an idea uh, versus like, what were some of the things maybe that you did to kind of learn the nuances of your customer and how they think? I mean, listen, I have a marketing background and I wish I could say that I did all this research, but it was like, yeah. I had managed a brand for a f- millennial women's audience mm-hmm. for years like that's yeah. not talks to millennial women yeah and then i had been building and speaking to millennial women on twitter on instagram mm-hmm. and it's i had this like market research at my fingertips every single moment because if i tweeted out like a, like at the start of the pandemic who's sleeping like what are your top 3 like 
issues right now. Yeah. And then the not, we were already doing research on like, are people having sex right now during COVID? Yeah. And so when I think about when you're a founder, there's two types of founders. There, There's the like, I'm a founder and I've always wanted to be a founder and I go and I build and I exit. Then I take a sabbatical and then I go and I build and I exit. That's like yeah. one pedigree of founder. Yep. It's this other pedigree that I believe I am in where I want to build something to change, impact a thing, a problem that affected me and the people near and close to me that I saw pattern recognition in. Yeah. And like that is what happened. I just know this. If you look at the stats, moms as a category are drinking, like drinking at, at a macro level. Mm-hmm. Alcohol consumption is going down. In this cohort, it's going up. Interesting. And so you you can see that there is a need. And then when you look at the actual like space of cannabis, one mm-hmm. hemp is not federally regulated, so there are a lot of shitty products on the market. Yeah. And I experienced them. There were like somewhere the THC is not like fully controlled and I would have to go to like a board meeting with bloodshot eyes and I'm like this is not okay yeah this needs to be there needs to be products that women can trust and so yeah that's kind of that was the market research it wasn't some like you know I didn't go into like a library and start looking at consensus data yeah yeah yeah. for the in the early days and you know brand it seems like it's been a pillar from the very beginning you know you made a bunch of investments and the the packaging is very high quality. It doesn't have a, it's not green with a leaf or rainbow. It's a very different, it's very elevated. And, you know, you, you made investments in swag, you know, like every, every, it seems like you've been very deliberate about every single kind of interaction or touch point that a customer would have with it. I'd be curious, you know, how, how you went through that process and how, how maybe you thought, especially in the early days where you're resource constrained and it can sometimes be difficult to, make the kinds of investments that one wants to make, how you think about the, how you, how you thought about the trade-offs and like early, early thinking about brands and where, where should one invest versus later? I'd be, I don't know. I'd just be curious to hear how you thought about that process. Yeah. So I'll go through like very in the weeds. So I did a brand pyramid as the first exercise of the branding. Like, what is it going to feel like? What are the emotional benefits? And then like, what's at the top of the brand pyramid? What's like its essence, right? Yeah. And I have like, I'm sure I could find it somewhere, like a 30 slide deck of like inspirational pictures. Then I actually mocked up what I want the logo to look like. And then I said, what are the foundational elements I need? Okay. One, I needed like a couple of slides. So it looked good for like pitching. I needed the logo. I needed the mark. Yeah. And then I I wanted to have like a set of ads that I could like look at and have as like a guiding light. Mm -hmm. I got it to a place where I was basically on like the 10 yard line before I ever brought in a designer. Got it. Had the first found a designer who was a former pentagram designer because I was like, I need somebody that's worked on rent the runway away. Like I knew exactly I wanted to create a a luxury millennial women's brand. So I needed a designer who had touched millennial luxury women's brands. Found this woman, Natalia. She's incredible. Former pentagram designer. And we had one call. We did two rounds of iterations. And then I had my brand guidelines. Wow. Because I had gotten it to a place where it was so crystal clear what I wanted She just nailed it the first time. She was the one who came up with the like visual identity of the lines. Each pillar has a different set of lines. Yep. I knew the colors I wanted. She helped me kind of like finesse the actual Pantone, but like that was the start. Yeah. Then you start writing copy, Mm -hmm. right? So that you understand the voice and tone. So I remember I wrote the whole first page, hero and down of what, how I would say it. Yeah. Sat down with a web designer, said, here's the brand gu- guidelines and some assets. Mm-hmm. Here's the copy. Pull a Shopify site together using an existing template. Yeah. Did that. So it's like you just inch your way to it, but yeah. you have to start with some comps of like, what does it look and feel like and sound like? 
then yeah. you're spending money. And if you're not a brand marketer, if you're like, you know, dev, yeah, spend time with marketers and like form an opinion of what you want your brand to be like mm-hmm. so that you're not spinning. The last thing I would say about branding is that it is a growing thing. What you start with, the it's never going to be pixel perfect. Sure. The voice and tone is going to change. You're going to learn who your audience is based on who starts buying your product and speaks mm-hmm. to them maybe a little differently. And so like if you were to talk to some of our copywriters, like they would be like, at the beginning, it was mostly Amanda's voice. Like it was how I talk. Yeah. Now it's it's elevated and now it's a little bit more empowering, little bit like the way we do humor and wit is slightly different. It's less like yeah. corny because I'm a, like my mom jokes are a whole other level, but it grows, it changes. And you have to know that like, don't wait until it's like what you think is perfect to ship it. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you feel like I've, I've had this, I've never seen a study done on this and I think it would, I think it'd be really interesting, but I've had this theory that having a having a high quality brand is a is an early force multiplier for a startup uh, in terms of um, how it's perceived from customers in terms of when you're going out and you're pitching to investors how they perceive it in terms of its ability to attract press and that it's probably one of the the key things that someone should invest in kind of early on. And it doesn't always, you know, you mentioned like a lot of founders kind of maybe come from more of an engineering or a product background. They don't necessarily think that way. Does that, has that mapped to kind of your experience with this? And and, and if so, it, I know you're obviously kind of in DDC and that that tends to be more the case just from a skill set perspective or whatever it is. But do you think that's broadly applicable too? Or is that mostly a DDC thing? I mean, think about crypto, look at NFTs, like there's tons of projects. Like look at 2017 ICO boom, like yeah. tons of projects. Is it, can you create a community that is aligned with what the brand stands for and brings to the table? Yeah. And there's a reason why board apes are like killing it over. Functionally, it's the same thing yeah. over and over again. Rinse, repeat. It's like yeah. a cool JPEG. Like, right. The brand is what matters and what draws people in. Yes. Well, I mean, look, I'm a marketer, so I will say this, but like we are starting to see the tide shifting from D to C CAC. Like what's your, what's your CAC to LTV ratio? How can you buy ads? Like we're shifting away from that. And like, for me, we don't, we like, we've spent less than, any D to C on paid ads. Like we just on paid advertising a month ago and we are a year old. We went organically until a month ago. Yeah. I believe if you can figure out organic growth, then turning on paid is like the icing on the cupcake. Right. The D to C world, like we see it with Casper, like we see the numbers, like what they were acquired for and how much they raised is indicative of like, the tide needs to turn, and I believe it is to bring yeah. brand storytelling, organic community, all of those things at yeah. the forefront. For companies that are that are wanting to do, you know, then there's the idea of like every company's becoming a media company. You know, obviously, this kind of you know your experience at the Nod, I would imagine, informs some of some of this. Yeah, that 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 need to have an organic channel that is not so brittle and is not so so you know, Facebook changes its algorithm or whatever, and you're in trouble and now you're upside down. What are common, I guess, maybe what are some of the the decisions that you made in terms of investment in organic channels? Like what worked, what didn't work? Like what lessons maybe would you have for other entrepreneurs that are early stage, that, that have maybe more time than money and that want to build an organic, you know, channel to reach their customers or channels, but don't necessarily know where to start. Like, what would your advice be on how to do that and what they need to be thinking about? So one common mistake that I see with startup founders, like as I like mentor people, et cetera, is when you throw 30 things at the wall at once, you have no clue. You have no clue where to look at what's sticking. Mm -hmm. So tactically, get OKRs figured out in the forefront. Like have a clear objective and a key result of quantifiable key result of what you're trying to measure. 
Mm-hmm. Even from the early days. And then you take that key result and you say, what are three levers I am going to try to see if I can hit that key result? And you follow through on that. Because in the startup days, I see so many founders jump, shiny object, shiny object, shiny object. Mm-hmm. And then six months down the road, they're like, we have no clue where to invest dollars. We have no clue what was a positive ROI. And then yeah. that you slowly are like, oh, okay, I'm just gravitating towards paid ads because that's the only thing that I have quantifiable results on. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's like focus and finish. It's like if you truly believe partnerships, which I have a whole thought on partnerships, but if you believe partnerships yeah. are the way you're going to grow, let's say brand awareness, like mm-hmm. what does brand awareness mean to you? Is that PR impressions? Is that, you know, earned social impressions? Like how do you quantify that your brand is growing? Yeah. And you believe partnerships is the way to do that. Okay. For this quarter, follow through on two partnerships. Mm-hmm. And then see if you hit the thing that you designated, social impressions, okay? Earn social impressions. Did partnering with that brand give you, get you to 1 million earned social impressions? Mm-hmm. And then look back and say, that was not the tactic that got us to earn social impressions. Okay, next lever, influencers. Mm-hmm. Is the ROI positive? Is it leading to... So like, you have to be focused and see... Yeah things through because I just see people literally be a marketing pinball machine. Yeah. Was there, was there anything like, like if you were, obviously it depends on the nature of the product, what it is that you're trying to build. Are there any common themes in terms of things that you, it's like you, you said you have a whole thing about partnerships. It, it sounds not positive, but I'd be curious to hear that. But like, are there, are there, are there common approaches that you think would work, would work that have relatively broad applicability at a strategic level, not necessarily at a tactical level? Or does it really just depend on the product? It depends on your superpower because PR, I think, is a huge lever when done well. Yeah. So we have this funny phrase, like you're going to make fun of me. But um, so we say everything should be an octopus and not a swordfish because (laughs) let me like explain. I wish I could say like do PR or do this. But the way we think about it is, because that would be a swordfish if you were thinking about it from like one lever, one one channel. Yeah. So like, let's take PR, for example, and make it an octopus. Mm -hmm. Okay. You get the like, holy grail of like, I tried your product for a week and here's what happened. Okay, great. You now have Urge Media. Are you on Rakuten so that they are getting affiliate commission and now it's affiliate revenue? So now you're hitting brand and sales. Mm. Then you get the licensing of that content piece Mm -hmm. and you run paid ads behind it. Now, I'm a cannabis company, so I can't do any of that because there's so many barriers to cannabis marketing. But speaking from like a D to C product perspective, now you've taken a swordfish and made it an octopus. Then you ask, then you become friends with that editor and you ask for them to like amplify it on social And you maybe do an in-person editorial event and you bring editors together and now you have social impressions. Like you figure out how to grow the tentacles of the octopus. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I like that. I would imagine that a lot of your investors, either pre-seed, seed, I don't know if if you've done the A yet or not, but... um, Not yet. (laughs) Okay. I would imagine that many of them had a DTC background and had a DTC playbook. And it sounds as though, at least to some degree, you, you were violating maybe some of their mental models. Yeah. So how, how do you communicate that this is going to work? You know, I, I just trust me or whatever. Like what, what was, what was, um, what were those conversations like? And how did you kind of convince them that your approach here makes sense and, and, and you shouldn't do what everybody else is doing? So it's hard because these are pattern people. (laughs) Yeah. And I, on so many levels, don't look like the patterns they're familiar with, right? Yeah. Like literally on how I'm building the company from a work culture standpoint Mm. to that we are not a paid ad D to C company Mm -hmm. and that we're cannabis. Mm -hmm. So I will say that fundraising is super hard. Not because we're not growing organically. Like we just had 40% month over month growth. Yeah. Under a year, we 
will be profitable in Q1. Like all it like we're not even a year old. We have all the like bullet points of like what you would think VCs want to invest in. But because of all the things I first mentioned, sure, is they don't know they can't size the market because hemp is not federally legal. It's a brand new category. I mean, sexual health and wellness just became a VC backed category like two to three years ago. Yeah. So like literally I can show you hundreds of emails being like, we love what you're doing, love the brand, think you're the right person for this, but we cannot size this market. So thus we are out. Yeah. So I have to find investors that are untraditional and or understand the power of community and content, which is what led me to the founders of Pop Sugar leading my round. Brian Sugar built a media company. He understands the power of owning an audience's attention. Yep. And why that is, I want to say, better than like just paid ads. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it's it has not been easy. Funding is a nightmare for me because of yeah. all these things that I come against. But yeah. it makes yeah. it more exciting because it's like the people that do get on board, they mm. know that like if we succeed, we've built a moat like crazy. Sure. Yeah. For for entrepreneurs that are that would be listening to something like this, I just in conversations I've had in the past when you talk about the idea of kind of making th- thinking of yourself like a like a media business in addition to kind of being a product, their brains seize up a little bit and they get clammy. And I think part of it is just like it sounds like it sounds like a tremendous amount of work. So like, how do you, <laughs> how do you advise folks that that want to try to do your Go go kind of down your path, invest in organic, think of themselves like a like a like a media business and not just like a product. What advice would you give them? You cannot compare yourself to D to C companies because the growth trajectory it's slower at the beginning. Yeah. It's gonna be like, well, I could just spend 30K this month on paid ads. Right. You don't own that 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 audience is not yours. Right. They're like they just came through. You showed them the right ad at the right time and you you had the right conversion. Those are great things to have. Those are metrics and, and like practical things you should have. Yeah. But then are spending just as much effort on retention marketing. Yeah. And so it's just like choose your card. And for me, I'd rather own the audience, not, oh, that sounds like super predatory. I'd rather have a genuine connection yeah. with the person and provide value to them before they click checkout yeah. than try to earn their attention or earn their trust or earn their emotions yeah. after the fact. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Along the same lines, it seems like you've, and correct me if I'm wrong here. I can't, I can't, and I haven't, I haven't been able to figure it out. There's either, I don't know if it's in a, if it's, if you have like an affiliate kind of piece to this or like a multi-level marketing type of piece to this, or, or if it's just literally, you just have a community of people that love you and maybe probably a little bit of both, but like you have thousands of women out there now that are kind of talking about your brand and sharing the stuff that you share and all that kind of stuff. How, how did you approach the community building piece, because it seems very deliberate. And maybe what lessons have you learned kind of going through that process? So you probably have like a lot of listeners in the Midwest, right? So you, I grew up in the Midwest where MLMs are a thing. Mm-hmm. Can't like scroll my Facebook feed without somebody trying to sell you like rodent and field yeah. or whatever. Yep. And so I grew up understanding MLM mechanics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what are the reasons women go towards an MLM. One, it's the pro, like all these MLMs are out there tight saying you're going to make so much money, right? Sure. So maybe it's money. Most likely it's money, mission, and community. Mm-hmm. So as someone who is trying to empower women, I, I took the lens of what makes this predatory? Like, let's look at the quant behind MLMs. Let mm-hmm. the 1% of women make money Yeah. as there's two functions of an MLM, you have to buy the product up front. Right. 
So you have all this product in your house or, or waiting to be drop shipped, whatever it is, but you have yeah. to buy, there's monthly minimums that you have to hit. Yeah. And two, you have to recruit people, which is just gross. Like yeah. join my team. If, if I had to hear join right. my team one more time, <laughs> like let's, let's peel this back. Yeah. Why? Like women are influential. Yeah. If I go to dinner with a group of women, at some point, someone will ask me about what's my new like skincare, whatever, or mm. like, where did I get those shoes or you name it. Yeah. Someone will usually buy something in that dinner. Yeah. We are influential beings and we trust the people in our inner circles. Yeah. So when you're talking about something as extreme and unfamiliar as cannabis, mm -hmm. who are you going to trust? You're going to trust the mom friend or the woman in your life who's like, holy crap, I'm getting the best night's sleep ever. I'm taking this gummy and it's helping immensely versus mm -hmm. the dad that's like, we promise you'll sleep great. Like, no. Yeah. yeah. So to answer your first question, we are not an MLM. Yeah. We are affiliate marketing, which is around and has like, it's literally used in every single company out there. Yep. But we pair affiliate marketing with really, really intentional community. Yep. And so every one of our affiliate marketers, so we call them wise women, yep. get access to a Slack channel where they get to ask questions, whether it's about marketing, how to build a company, their sex life, our mm -hmm. experts, like we have an in-house counsel of a sex expert, a sleep expert, a wealth expert, like those people are in the Slack channel, can answer questions for them. Everything that I was saying on Twitter I would get tons of DMs being like, I want to talk about this, but yeah. I don't want to do it in the public sphere. I'm like, yeah. great, let's yeah. take the conversation I've been having on Twitter, move it into Slack so that we can form communities around all the aspects of what it's like to be a woman. Yeah. What my past was like, and what you see in, in VC-backed companies is like, there's mom groups that get, okay, this is the group you talk to about being a mom, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. This is the group you talk to about being a, you know, a CEO or, you know, a professional woman. Yeah. And then you have like maybe some friends you talk about your sex life with. But like what yeah. happens if we merge all those things? Because that's what the reality is. Yeah. Yeah. You're a, you're a multifaceted person. Yeah. I mean, related to that, I mean, you, you were probably my favorite example of somebody. When you talk about like that idea of building in public that we were talking about earlier, I mean, you, there's an authenticity to kind of what you're doing from a personal branding perspective. And I know you, you had been building a personal brand or, you know, whether it was deliberate or not, you had one prior to starting House of Wise. So you were able to kind of leverage that. But it's something that most entrepreneurs I talk to are afraid to do. They're afraid to put themselves out there. They're afraid to, I mean, they're in a lot of cases, they're afraid to tweet or do anything, period. But then especially to kind of marry their, their professional life or the, the corporate aspect of their life with even some of the personal aspects of their lives that just is terrifying to them. And it seems like that's something that you, I would imagine just based on how deliberate everything else has been, that there were, there was some deliberateness to that. And it seems like it's been working quite well. What would your, I guess, well, I guess, was that a deliberate decision? What maybe have you learned kind of through doing that? And maybe what would your advice be to others who think that that would be beneficial to them, but they're not sure, or they're afraid to do it? I wish I could say it was deliberate. I like my journey on Twitter. Like I just got on Twitter now. It's probably been like two and a half years ago. Like okay. I just started actively tweeting. It wasn't for the intention of like, I'm going to tweet. I was in a conversation with the guy I was dating at the time. And he was like big on Twitter. He loved Twitter. He was like, all my friends are from Twitter. And I was like, it's a male echo chamber. I don't know <laughs> why you spent time on that. And he's like, Amanda, if you put the things that you say to me out mm -hmm. there, Yep. You will literally like open up doors that you don't even understand could be open for you. Yeah. So I love to be proven wrong. And so I was like, listen, I will go on Twitter for six months. Mm -hmm. I will tweet five times a day. Mm -hmm. I like make it a priority and I'll see what happens. Like, I want to see what you're talking about because yep. he was literally like raising capital and doing all this stuff from Twitter. Yeah. So that's why I got on. It wasn't like, I want to build a personal brand. It was like, you've proven that Twitter's not just for men. Okay. And then 
it did start to do those things. Like all of a sudden, investors were responding to my emails. People, every single person that works for House of Wise, I found on Twitter. Yeah. So we sales comes from Twitter. Like it's insane. And so that's the personal brand piece. Now, should everyone have a personal brand or talk like I do? Like if we were to go to dinner, Sean, you would know more about my life than you probably ever would want to (laughs) know because that is just who I am. Like I am a very unfiltered, wear my heart on my sleeve. I say what I'm feeling all the time. So literally, I don't put any thought into any of my tweets. That's why there's tons of typos. Like I literally am tweeting what's happening in my brain for better or for worse. Sure. Now, I've had people come to me like social media managers being like, we want to coach our CEO on how to talk in public. And I'm like, if it's not how they talk every single day, it will be inauthentic. It will land and it will look performative. Yeah. So every founder should reveal their whole personal life because if it's not what they want to do, that will come through. Yeah. The building in public piece, though, where you are bringing people along the journey of what Mm -hmm. it's like to build the company because you are going to learn so much during that first year that lots of people want to hear about. And so there's ways... Like I always say, like, I never try to, I never subtweet anyone. I never try to put anything out there that's negative, but everything that happens that's negative, you can make a positive. Like, say you have a bad interaction with an employee or you have to fire someone. Turn it into five things you should look for when hiring a blank because you learned the hard way. All of a sudden, you have a valuable tweet that's twisted into the positive from Mm -hmm. the lesson you learned and, and go forward. You have content coming out your ears when you're a founder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I would be, and if, if you know, if, if interesting or whatever, that's fine, but I, I would be super curious on how you were juggling everything just at <laughs> a personal level. You know what I mean? Like, like, how do you grow a business like this? I mean, it seems like you've got a very competent team just in some of the interactions I've had with them, chuckle ton, I'm sure. But you know, like you said, you got three young kids. You, you know, I know you've, you've, you moved a couple of times in the last year while trying to do all of it. Like how, are there any other than just, I'm doing my best, <laughs> you know, and I'm getting good sleep. Like, are there any other sort of practices or disciplines or routines or ways in which you structure your day or week that have been helpful in, in that regard? I'm like a really fun robot. Like if that makes sense. <laughs> so when I'm fundraising, all hell breaks loose and your your calendar is no longer your own. Right. Like at the, you know, yep. most when people can meet with you. But yeah. normally I am super intentional about my day. So before I get to my desk in the morning, I already have somewhere written things that I want to move forward that day. Mm-hmm. I don't take meetings before 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. Because everything is around like, optimizing your day around your like best self, right? Yep. My cortisol levels are twice as high in the morning. I'm a morning person is what like you would say. Mm-hmm. But uh, from a like a physical perspective, it's because my cortisol levels are so high. Yes. So I can get like eight hours of work done in three hours if I lock my notifications, if I sit down during that time and only focus on those three things. I get them done. Yeah. Then I move in. So I call that offense. Like I'm on offense in the morning and that usually starts around 8.30 after I've gotten the kids to to school, et cetera. Yeah. I try to get up around five so that way I can have like my quiet time of like reading whatever or being mindful. I I wish I could say I meditate, but I don't. My brain doesn't do that. Yeah. Then I go into defense. So 12 to 334 is defense, meaning everybody else needs me. Yeah. Meetings do I need to be in? What slacks do I need to respond to? Mm -hmm. It's moving other people's stuff forward. Mm -hmm. By four, my cortisol crashes. Like flat out, I am not a functioning human by 4 p.m. Yeah. So I go to the gym. Mm -hmm. Four to five is like my like get back into like functioning as a human mode. 
Mm-hmm. Then I have to go get my kids, get my kids. I'm in mom mode. And then I go to sleep. And yeah. literally, like, I get my kids to bed. I go to bed at 9 p.m. Yeah. every single night. Like, yeah. take my gummy, I get my eight hours, nine hours of sleep. And then I yeah. do it again because I I can't do everything in a day. Yeah. But if I get the big things I wanted to done in the morning, yeah. I call it a win. Yeah. And that's it. Like, it's not like rocket science. Like, I think people are looking for me to say some like groundbreaking thing. Yeah. But it's like, I get good sleep, which allows me to think clearly. So I get mm-hmm. my eight hours of work done in three hours and I get yep. a workout in and I spend time with my kids when I have them so that I I don't feel guilt. I don't allow guilt to happen. Like whatever's yeah. in front of me is the thing I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's funny, I, li- I, I was chatting with the founder of Rescue Time uh, recently and that he not only like, that whole three hour thing, like that's, that is the rule. And his whole, his whole thing is like, I'm trying to convince people like you can't, you cannot move at that pace for eight hours. You just can't. And so figure out when your three hours is or whatever it is and kind of optimize for that. That's, like, that's cool. People literally are like, Amanda, you only work three hours a day. And I was like, that's all I need to work. Like, have you seen how much I get done in that three hours? Like it is like a time. Yeah. But then also like, I will say surround yourself with people. Like I know what my superpowers are and where my gaps are. Mm-hmm. I am a starter, not a finisher. Yeah. I'm great at the zero to like 1.5. Sure. But once we start getting into weeds, my yeah. AP literally, I'm like, I don't, someone else has to like do that thing. Yeah. And I, I have surrounded myself with, like we do a ton of these assessments. I surround myself with finishers. Yeah. Like people who are not the zero to one, but they love the like checklist. I'm going to do this, 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 they, Cross every T, dot every I. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Well, listen, I want to be respectful of your time. We're we're in your focus block. Um, (laughs) For folks that want to learn more about House of Wise, where should we send them? Houseofwise.co. You can learn about the products. You can read all of our amazing content from all of our editors. Or you can follow me on Twitter if you want to hear about business stuff. If you want to see the behind the scenes of my like crazy mom life, that's Instagram. But yeah. Very cool. This has been uh, super fun. It's been, it's been really, you know, my, my, in my class in particular, you know, uh, lots of, lots of MBA students trying to build DTC stuff and trying to get things off the ground. And and you were one of the, the few that I kind of keep pointing them to about, you know, seeing how the, how one does this and how one goes kind of from zero to one and the good and the bad. I mean, cause like you said, you're, you're sharing the challenges too. So Congrats on everything so far and looking forward to seeing kind of where House of Wise goes in the coming years. Thank you. Appreciate it. My guest today was Amanda Getz. For more info on how to disrupt your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.